Sorry. Good morning. Uh, an incredible schos to be here with you this morning and to continue Emir Hashem in our journey through Sefer Tehillim. So what I would like to do, Emir Hashem, for the next two, for our last two classes before, uh, before the summer break, is to focus on Tehillim Perek Dalit, chapter four. And we're going to see that contained in this capital are a number of incredibly profound and meaningful lessons, like all of the, all of Sefer Tehillim. But let's begin with number one by taking a quick look at the capital itself. So literally again to the conductor with melodies, a song of David. When I call, answer me, O God of my righteousness. In my distress, you have relieved me. Be gracious to me and hearken to my prayer. B'nei ish. Sons of man, how long will my honor be disgraced? David Amalek says, how long will you love a futility? How long will you constantly seek lies? Pasuk Dalid, Udu'u, Ki Hifla Hashem, Chosid Lo, Hashem Yishma Bikar I Eilov. You shall know, the Lord has set apart the pious man for himself. The Lord shall hear when I call out him. Rigzu, Va'al Techeto, We'll actually stop over here because we're going to focus really on the first part of this capital this morning. So interestingly enough, whenever we learn... So again, the, the theme of the capital is one that we are quite familiar with. Again, what's interesting to note about this capital is as follows. In the past when we've seen this type of opening phrase, usually the theme of the capital is one of joy and jubilation. To the conductor, we know David Amalek wrote the music for the Levitic choir. Beneginos with a melody usually has a connotation of simcha. Yet again, when we look at the subject of this capital, right? When we go ahead and we kind of go through the words, so we begin to see David Hamelech's pain in an incredible fashion. On one hand, he points out to me that he points out that I cry out to you in pain and distress. And you listen to me. But already again in Pasakimo Ish already again David Hamalach highlights, Son of man, how long will my honor be disgraced? So once again you begin to see that the theme of the capital is conflict. Conflict. Now, granted, again, it's conflict, but in the middle of this conflict, David HaMelech says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you're always here for me. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you always take care of me. But conflict, nevertheless. Now, of course, like many kapitlach, David HaMelech goes ahead and kind of begins, I'm singing to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. you hear me whenever I call out, whenever I am in distress. People afflict me. People, people, people visit so much pain and hurt upon me. But remember, we didn't do it inside, but I'll tell you outside, the capital ends, In peace together, I would lie down and sleep. We're going to see another sleep motif in Mir Hashem next week's share. For you, O Lord, make me dwell alone in safety. So the end, the end of the capital is one, once again, of emuna, of reliance, of faith in the Ribbon Shalom. And if you look at so much of Sefer Tehillim, the Kapitlach follow this same type of theme, an expression of joy, an expression of, of what's the right word? I'll call it a sense of, a sense of security in the Ribbon Shalom, who will hear me. And then a discussion about all the turmoil. 
all the difficulty, whether it's spiritual turmoil, theological turmoil, interpersonal turmoil, and then the capital ends again with another statement of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I know you have my back. I know somehow, some way, everything is going to be okay. That at the end of the day is the, is the theme of this capital, the theme of many kapitlach. So whenever we look at Sefer Tellem, the first thing we try to understand is when was this written? Because remember, if we get a little bit of historical context, we could appreciate a bit more what David HaMelech is trying to convey. So the Radak in number two says, Hanochon, Shane'emar HaMizmar Hazeh, Gamkin Bevarchom Mipnei Avshalom. So this is incredible. According to the Radak, Kapitel Dalit is really an extension of Kapitel Gimel. Remember again, what was Kapitel Gimel? Mizmar David Bevarchom Mipnei Avshalom Beno. Right? Kapitel Gimel was a, a Mizmar, a song that David Anelach sang when he was running away from Avshalom. The Radak understands that this Kapitel is an extension of that one. calls out, people are afflicting me. The Radak says this was also said during, the, dur- during his, his flight from Avshalom, which, you know, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but it's, it's, really, it's really quite a dramatic thing that David HaMelech kind of puts out these kapitloch, puts out these magnificent, melodic, poetic pieces in the midst of such dramatic turmoil. You know, generally, when people are in turmoil, it takes all of their inner strength to just keep afloat, to just keep my head above water. People generally, you know, people, you know, we think that sometimes people find God in moments of crisis or in moments of trial or tribulation. I don't think it usually works that way. I think, in fact, when people are in the midst of crisis, they often have to use all of their koach just to simply stay afloat. That that becomes that becomes the pinnacle of accomplishment. I'm not going to drown in the crisis. People, the time to find Hakadosh Baruch Hu is when life is tranquil, if that happens, right? When 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 life is when when there aren't so many waves, when it's not so chaotic, that's the time when there's tranquility and peace to work on my relationship with the Rebbeinu Shalom. And if I work on it, then in times of tranquility. When crisis comes about, which inevitably it does, I am ready to deal with the crisis because I am bolstered. I am bolstered by that relationship with Hashem. What's uni- and this, by the way, I think is the hallmark of David HaMelech. David HaMelech doesn't find God in crisis. Remember, again, David HaMelech found God during years of tranquility. You'll say, I, when did King David ever have, ever have years of tranquility? You're right. King David never had tranquility. David had tranquility. Before I became king, right? Before I became David Malcolm Meshicha, before I became David Melech Yisrael, when he was just a, a regular private citizen, he was a shepherd, he did have years of tranquility. And it was during those years that he built a magnificent relationship with Hashem. And because he built that relationship, it was able to sustain him even in the midst of some pretty chaotic lifetimes. So it's incredible to see that Adak says another capital that David HaMelech created in the midst of his flight from Avshalom. Now, interestingly enough, the Malbim has a different approach. Machlok is a little bit of Machlok is Farshim about the context of the capital. So the Malbim writes in number three. So the Malbim says, in fact, this capital was written in the aftermath, or during, actually, I should say, an incredibly tumultuous event. There was a famine. It was a famine, a regional famine that had taken hold of Eretz Yisrael for a period of three years. 
Now, what, what was the cause of the famine? You know, this is incredible, the late sunim, right? So the scoffers or the mockers, they said, oh, you want to know why there's a famine? Because of the chait of David HaMelech. Because of the chait of David HaMelech. The chait, of course, that they're referring to is the episode with Bathsheba. Remember again, so much of David HaMelech's life is wrapped up in this event with Bathsheba. So, so much of it. And remember, at the end of the day, the emotional forgave David for, for that event. He forgave David for that trespass. But David HaMelech finds no rest. Every, everything that happens, everything that goes wrong in Cloud Yisrael, everything that go, goes wrong in Eretz Yisrael, and everything that went wrong in the world, people always attributed it to the chait of David HaMelech. David HaMelech was unable to extricate himself from the clutches of that sin. I want to be clear. David HaMelech was the paradigmatic Balchuva. David HaMelech did tshuva. He owned the chait. He owned the mistake. The Ribbon Shalom forgave him. Ribbon Shalom blessed the union of David and Bathsheba. But yet, people would not let David move forward. They would not let him move on. So the Malbim says there was this three-year famine. People claimed, the late Sunday Hadra, the scoffers claimed that the famine was a result of the sin of David. The David Shal Azbashal, number three, second line. David asked, why is there a famine? You see, we, 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 we have to appreciate this. We live in a time and we've been living for the last 2,000 years without Nevo, without prophecy. But you know what it means to live in, a, in an era of Nevo, an era of prophecy? That when there's a problem, you could ask. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine, things happen in the world all of the time. And we always find ourselves asking the question, why did this happen? Why did that happen? And we have to kind of be content with the knowledge that although there's a reason for everything and there's an answer for everything, often we don't know it. So David HaMelech, there's a famine, a three-year famine. They want to know why it is. David HaMelech asks the Ribbono Shalom. And what happens? So listen to this. So the Malbim says that in fact the famine came about for something dramatically different. The famine came about because of Shaul. It was actually a punishment to Shaul. Now Shaul was dead already, but it was a punishment to Shaul ultimately again because Shaul had killed out the Givonim. Okay, what's this story? So take a look at number four. So number four is the actual quotation from Shmuel Beis, which contains the story of this famine. So the Navi writes, David There was a famine during the days of David, which extended for three years. David sought out, why is this happening? Al Asher Hemis Es So literally translated, it is for Shaul and his bloody house because he put to death the Givonim. Now, this is interesting because the truth is we don't really find an episode in Nabi of Shaul going ahead and, and killing out the Givonim. Now, before we get into this, who were the Givonim? Who were they? So remember again, in order to appreciate the Givonim, we have to go back a little bit earlier in Jewish history. Yoshua enters the land, right? Enters into Canaan. And the halacha was, Cheshbarach told him, that there's a choice. Either the seven nations who inhabit Canaan could leave, could leave, or you kill them out. The idea being that the Ribbon Shalom said 
that in order for Am Yisrael to have a sustained presence and build a spiritual home in Eretz Yisrael, you have to eradicate the negative forces. You don't have to kill anybody out there. Welcome to leave. And if they leave, we'll, we'll, we'll help them back. But at the end of the day, you cannot sustain these indigenous nations in your land. So therefore, again, what happened? So there are many battles that were fought. The Givonim were a nation who inhabited Canaan, and they realized that they would be unable to fight the Jewish people. So they did something very interesting, which is they dressed up, and they pretended that they were a foreign nation from a foreign land, not from Canaan. And they introduced themselves to Yoshua, and Yoshua makes a treaty with them. Then their lie is discovered, and it turns out that in fact they were one of the nation's indigenous nations. The problem was that Yoshua had already made a covenant with them. So to kill them out now or to expel them would be Yoshua going back on his word, and he couldn't do that. So instead, what does he do? He relegates them to the status of water carriers. So they were, they were servants. They became the servants of the Jewish people. The Givonim became the servants. Okay, that's the story of the Givonim. Where does this episode happen where Shaul kills out the Givonim? So this is very interesting. So Rashi in number five explains over here. If you take a look at Rashi, it's Rashi paragraph Gimel. It's the last, the last paragraph on the first page. Rashi says, So remember, so Rashi points out like this. You're familiar with the story, David HaMelech, right before David HaMelech, before, before he's king, David is the son-in-law of the king. He marries Michal, the daughter of the king, the daughter of Shaul. He's married to Michal. Shaul, Shaul then has it out for his son-in-law. And Shaul is ready to kill David because he's convinced himself that David is trying to rebel. Now, to be clear, David is not trying to rebel. David has no interest in the crown. David has no interest in the monarchy. David is happy just to mind his own business. But Shaul is convinced that his son-in-law is trying to go ahead and kill him. So you know the story that Michal lowers David out of the window in order to escape her father-in-law, right? He puts some pillows onto the cover to pretend like David HaMelech is sleeping in bed, and David HaMelech escapes. Where does David HaMelech escape to? He escapes to a city called Nov. Now, Nov, interestingly enough, was a city of Kohanim. Nov ir Kohanim. So he comes to Nov and he tells the Kohanim of Nov, listen, I'm on a secret mission from the king. See, David did not want to air the family dirty laundry. Right? David HaMelech did not want to tell anybody what was happening. So instead he just says, I'm on a secret mission from the king. And he says, I, I left very quickly so no one should know I'm on the mission. I need food and I need weapons. So Nov, they gave him food. They said, well, this is Nov Irakon and we don't have any weapons. Amazing enough, the only weapon they had was the shield and the sword of Goliath, of Goliath, who David HaMelech had killed a little while earlier. Okay, so they go on. What happens? One of Shaul's spies, a guy by the name of Doeg HaAdomi, sees that Nov gave food and weapons to David. He comes back and he tells Shaul, Shaul, the Kohanim of Nov are conspiring against you to rebel against you, and they're working together with your son-in-law, David. Shaul confronts the people of Nov, and the people of Nov say, Shaul, we don't know what you're talking about. Rebellion, what do you think about? Your son-in-law came. He said he was on a mission from you. Because he was on a mission, we gave, we gave him, we gave him food, we gave him weapons. What, what, what's the problem? Shaul orders Doeg to slaughter the entire city of Nov. The entire city of Nov. 
And together with the city of Nov, they also slaughtered a number of the Givonim, who were working as water carriers and wood choppers and other tasks within the city of Nov. So these, so so therefore, again, to kind of loop this back, so what comes out over here is there's a three-year famine during the reign of David Amalek. So the late Sunni Hadar, the scoffers are are blaming it on David and Bathsheba. David says that's not me, Hashem, who forgave me for the sin. So he consults Yibam Shalom Hashem, who says, "Oh, this famine is payback." It's retribution, ultimately, again, for the fact for what Shaul did to Nov, and more specifically, for what Shaul did to the Givonim. There was a treaty with the Givonim. Shaul violated the treaty with the Givonim. And therefore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is exacting punishment on Klal Yisrael for the behavior of Shaul HaMelech. That was the three-year famine. So again, so amazing enough, so the Malbim, the Malbim explained, the, this is the Malbim number three, that this particular capital, Parak Dalit, chapter four in Tehillim, was written by David HaMelech during this time of famine. So now the capital begins to make sense, because when David HaMelech says as follows, B'nei Ish, when David HaMelech says, when the sons of man, how long will my honor be disgraced? What honor is being disgraced? Because here there's a regional famine. And yet the mockers and the scoffers are blaming it on David HaMelech. David HaMelech says, why? Why does everything come back to me? Why does, you know, David HaMelech committed one indiscretion. So why does everything come back to the one indiscretion? Especially given the fact that I did tshuva. Especially given the fact that the Rebbe has already forgiven me. Why does everything always come back? to this one thing over and over and over. But I'll show you something interesting. See, the, the Malbim goes on. The Malbim number six says something quite amazing. The Malbim writes, Rav. So listen to what the Malbim says. Haksuvim morim Remember again, we said this before, that when Shaul killed out the, Givon, um, the, the city of Nov, not only does he go out and kill out the city of Nov, but he also killed out a number of the Givonim. Right? That Shaul was ultimately, again, he was punished for three things. So again, the Malbim goes through the three, the three mistakes of Shaul. Now, what's interesting is the first two mistakes that Shaul made, we don't have to go through it, but the first two mistakes that Shaul made, Shaul was punished for during his lifetime. During his lifetime. The last one, which was the massacre of Nov and the slaughter of the Givonim, Shaul was punished after he passed away. Right, this punishment only came when he was dead. And already remember the three-year famine, which was the punishment for Shaul's behavior, comes after, comes after Shaul's death. And there's an incredible lesson that comes out of this, right? An incredible Musrahaska, if we think about this. Let's talk about this for a moment outside. That what David Hamalek, and we're gonna see what this capital is really trying to highlight for us, is this idea that you know. We, as we go through life, we shoulder many things. We shoulder many things. And the truth is, you know, everyone's got a peckle. You know, you know, they often say that if everybody would like take their peckle and put it in the middle, right? And you would see everyone else's peckle. You would take, right? Everybody else's, everybody else's arts, you would take your own back. 
I'm not so convinced of that. I, I happen to think that some that, that not everybody has the same tsaris. There are objectively people who suffer more and suffer less. And when I use the word suffer, I mean there are people who deal with different levels of adversity. And I, I don't believe the fact that if you psych, I, I know people, and I know some people very well. I get to see a, a window into a lot of people's lives. And I know people's tsaris. And yeah, there are tsaris. I can see, oh, this one would definitely swap with this one. And this one would definitely swap with this one. Not all tsaris are the same. Some people have more, some people have less. But leaving that aside, the one great common denominator of the human condition is that everyone carries their burden. Everyone. For some people, their burden are their parents. For some people, I don't, I, don't mean, I don't mean the burden of caring for parents. I mean, I mean the burden of sometimes parents don't do a good job. And sometimes parents do a really terrible job and they saddle their children with an emotional burden that happens. And there are many people who walk around with a burden from their parents, not of their own making. Some people have the burden of failed marriages, failed relationships, you know, children who do all kinds of different things. We, we all have, we all have the, 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 the luggage, right? The burden that we carry. And that, 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 of course, the one thing I didn't, mess, that I didn't mention is the personalistic burden a failure, right? There's not one person who hasn't failed in some way. And if you think you haven't failed, I have news for you. You're just deluding yourself. All of us have failed at some point in time, in some way, sometimes big, sometimes small, but very, and we carry that. Even if you don't think about it, most of us carry around our life failures. What David Amalek is introducing us here is to something dramatically amazing, which is not only do we shoulder our personal burden, but we also shoulder the burden of our collective past. And I know what you're thinking. Oh gosh, for this, I signed on to this year, right? This is when I'm starting the day, right? I, I, I'm exhausted enough from schlepping around my own peckle. And now, and now Silver just told me that I also have the burden and the peckle of the collective cloudy trouble of the past. So sometimes, even if you hear things you don't want to hear, it's good to know the truth. So this is the MS. And the MS is that there are many incredible privileges with being part of Kalal Yisrael, but there are also many responsibilities. And part of that responsibility is we all shoulder the collective responsibility for the Kalal. And that's what David HaMelech is highlighting in this capital. Because think about this in just a moment, right? Remember how the capital begins. The become, see, if you think about it, to a certain degree, the beginning of the capital doesn't really match that they'll call it the body of the capital. Because the chapter begins, And as I mentioned before, usually when you see that introduction, the topic and the theme of the capital is upbeat, is exciting, is incredible. But yet, as you go through this capital, David HaMalek is highlighting pain and difficulty and the feeling of betrayal. Why do people treat me this way? Why do people interact with me this way? Why do I have to suffer? Why do I undergo this? Why do all these things happen? Of course, again, David HaMalek then comes back. I know you've got my back. You're going to take care of me. So what's amazing is David HaMalek almost begins with a euphoric feeling of being part of a collective. Right? You know, in moments we, ha- we have this, often it's in times of crisis when we feel like this. But like, Sometimes you have these moments where you say, wow, it is so incredible to be part of Kalal Yisrael. I feel so privileged to be part of this collective nation. Maybe it's when you hear something amazing. Maybe it's in times of crisis. When you see the achtos and you see the chasi, you see the unity, you see the kindness. There are incredible moments when we feel privilegedly part of the Kalal. 
But David HaMalach says, by the way, but with that privilege comes awesome responsibility. And what's the awesome responsibility? That I also bear the collective, I bear the responsibility when things don't go well, right? None of us lives in a bubble. And when things happen within Kalal Yisrael that are not good, when things happen that should not be happening, there is a sense of collective responsibility for those misdeeds and those mistakes as well. That's what's happening in this capital. There's a three-year famine. And why is there a three-year famine? It has nothing to do with David HaMelech. Not a mistake of David, like the Leitzim said. And by the way, it has nothing to do with anyone who's in a leadership position at that time. Who does it have to do with? Why is there a three-year famine? Ultimately, because Shaul made a terrible mistake. Because Shaul slaughtered an entire city of Jews. And alongside with those Jews, he also slaughtered a whole bunch of Givonim, with whom Yahushua made a treaty. So Shaul violated the treaty. He engaged in terrible, horrific bloodshed. And ultimately, again, now Klal Yisrael. Shaul is gone. Shaul is gone. Right? Shaul is an Olam Haba. Shaul is an Olam Haba. Right? And now again, Klal Yisrael is being punished. Why? Because at the end of the day, there is this sense of collective responsibility. Something wrong happened in Klal Yisrael. And at the end of the day, now the Klal is being held accountable. But you'll say to yourself for one second, as they say, Zalofer, right? Zalofer, I don't understand. What, what do you mean? Why? why, why David HaMelech, David HaMelech is doing everything right. He's doing everything he's supposed to be doing. So now I'm held responsible for what Shaul did? And Klal Yisrael is held responsible for what Shaul did? So I'll show you something amazing. See, what the Navi really is highlighting, is, is that what David HaMelech, what the Atilim is really highlighting, is the crime of Shaul. See, there were, there were two crimes that were committed. There was the crime of Shaul in the slaughter of the Givonim, of, of, of Nov and the Givonim, but there was also the crime of the Klal. And what was the crime of the Klal? That was the crime of passivity. You see, no one stood up. No one stood up. No one stood up and said, you can't do this. No one stood up and said, you're not allowed to act like this, Shaul. You may be the king, but being the king doesn't give you the license to go ahead and supersede the divine will. Being the king doesn't give you the license to engage in questionable, not even questionable, in wrong moral and ethical behavior. No one stood up. No one said no. No one said wrong. And from a Judaic perspective, Silence is complicity. If you don't stand up in the face of evil, then you are complicit in the commission of that evil. You'll say to yourself, how could it be that Klal Yisrael is held accountable after Shaul is dead? Shaul's been dead for a while. Now, HaKadosh Baruch you're bringing a three-year famine because of what Shaul did, but Shaul's gone. Shaul's gone. Shaul's gone. But the Klal is here. And the clown, no one, no one, including David Amalek. The truth is, David Amalek was 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 in transit, right? He was he was fleeing. He was in flight. He didn't know what happened until after the fact. But again, no one in the nation stood up, and because no one in the nation stood up, then ultimately, again, the clown, the am, is held accountable as being complicit because of their silence. And this, I, I think, is an incredible and overwhelming yesod.
Because a lot of times in life, we assume that, you know, if I'm not actively perpetrating the wrong, as long as I'm not perpetrating it, then ultimately, again, I'm not really responsible for it. If I'm not the perpetrator, then there's no liability. And what David HaMalach is really teaching us is, that's incorrect. That's incorrect. If I see something that is wrong and I do nothing, and I, by the way, when I say and I do nothing, then I'm complicit. If I allow evil to occur, if I allow, and I'm using a big word like evil, but you understand, if I allow something wrong to occur, and I have the ability, you know, you don't always have the ability to stop something, but you do have the ability to object. And you do have the ability to say, the chen lo said, this is not what we do. This is not how we behave. This is not how we conduct ourselves. If I don't go ahead and make my voice heard, then I become complicit. And if I become complicit, there is liability in the complicity of silence. The cloud, no one ever said to Shaul, no. I got it. You're afraid. You're afraid. He's the king. And the truth is, he was a little bit off the rails with David HaMelech, with David, there's no question. But no one said no. How can you allow the slaughter of innocent people? And no one ever says no. No one ever says, excuse me, you're not allowed to do that. And the truth is, I think this opens up a, a, much, a much bigger discussion. A much bigger discussion. I mean, the truth is, this. I, I feel very drawn to this discussion because you know we're living we're living in such strange times, and it's important for us to recognize that the overwhelming wave of anti-Semitism, it's here. You know, we live a little bit in 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 a bubble, in a bubble, and we kind of read what's going on in the outside world, but we to a certain you know cognitive dissonance is a very is a very strong thing. And, you know, we see active anti-Semitism happening. And to a very large degree, we also hear a lot of silence. We hear a lot of silence, right? When, when other groups are targeted or attacked, there's, there's a tidal wave of support from every single corner. And yet somehow, when it's Jews, the support is not the same. The support is not the same. I mean, it's, it's a general something we have to think about, about our place in the diaspora and, and wondering, you know, about where our future is and what our future is. It's a very significant communal conversation. I don't just mean communal Baltimore. I mean like communal conversation, like a diaspora jury conversation about where is the future and what does this really say about how the nations view us and see us because sometimes the silence is deafening. And remember, we lived through deafening silence less than a century ago. And where there is silence, where there is silence, the most barbaric forms of hatred are allowed to rear its ugly head. It's dramatic. But I mean, even let, let's, let's consolidate a little bit because that, that's a heavy conversation, overwhelming conversation. But this notion that silence is complicit, is, that, that one is complicit if there's silence in the face of evil, kind of opens up a different conversation. You know, there's an incredible mission. I'll just tell you this outside. Actually, I mean, you have it on your sheet, but I'll talk about it outside. It's number eight on the sheet, but I'll, 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 I'll kind of extrapolate or expound on it outside. The Mishnah says, Famous Mishnah. Look at three things and you will not come to sin. What are they? Know what is above you. 
Va'ozen Shamas, Vachol Maasacha Basefer Nechtaven. No one is above you. A seeing eye, a listening ear, and all of your deeds are recorded. All right, all of your deeds are recorded in the divine book. So the most piece, we're familiar with this Mishnah, right? So what, what is the Mishnah coming to teach us? So the way we normally read the Mishnah is as follows, right? Look at three things and you won't come to sin. And what are the three things? So there's an introductory phrase. The first introductory phrase is, Know what is above you. That's the introductory phrase. And what are the three things? There is a, a watchful eye, eye in roa, ozen shomas, a listening ear, and everything is recorded in a book. In other words, that what the Mishnah is sensitizing me to is a lot of times I do things and what I'm most concerned about is no one should see me. I, I'm, I'm concerned. I don't want people, okay, we, we all sin. We all, we all make mistakes. I commit an Aveira. I just don't want anyone to see me. What I'm most, what I'm most concerned about is other people, what other people are going to think. And the Mishnah says, oh, by the way, you can fool people all the time. You know, they say, what is it? You can fool some of the people some of the time or all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all the time. It's not true, by the way. You can fool all the people all the time. There are many, many people who do it masterfully all the time. You can fool all of the people all the time. So the Mishnah says, that's fine. You can fool all the people all the time. You can't fool the Ribbana Shalom because Kaddish Baruch who sees everything, hears everything, and records everything. So after 120, when the This Is Your Life ledger is opened up in front of you, and the Ribbono Shalom has recorded every single thing. And by the way, I want to point out, Ribbono records everything, which means, you see, we often think about this, he records every Avera. That, that's true. He also records every mitzvah. <laughs> I, want to just, I want to remind everyone of that fact. Right? The Ribbono Shalom is much more focused on the good that we do than the negative things that we do. See, but he records everything. The Bashan Tevah Kodesh reads this Mishnah a little bit differently. And he says as follows. He says, It's true. Look at three things and you will not come to sin. Right? What, what are the three things that you should look at? He reads it differently. He says, number one is da ma lemala mimcha. He says, number one thing to remember is know that there is a ribono shal olam who choreographs everything. There is nothing haphazard that happens to me in life. Everything that happens to me is choreographed from the Ribbono Shalom. Not just the things that, quote unquote, God causes, but every interaction is choreographed by the Ribbono Shalom. You know, if you have a negative interaction with someone, Kadesh Baruch Hu wanted you to have that negative interaction. Now, it's true. That person had the Bechira. That person had the free will to speak to me nastily or to hurt me. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted me to have this experience, right? We often think that, you know, what, ha- what, what are the things that God visits upon me? My parnasa is from God. My health is from God. Those are the things my children are from God. But the other stuff, like if I have a negative interaction with someone, that's not HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's, that's Ploni. That's the, that's the other individual. No. Everything that happens to me in life is choreographed by the Rebono Sha'olam. Da mala mala mimcha. All know that everything that happens to you is all mala. Is all from HaKadosh Baruch. Everything that happens is from the Rebono Sha'olam. That's number one. What's number two? Ayin Roa, a seeing eye, 
and Ozen Shomas, a listening ear. The Bashan does not have to read this Mishnah. Everything you see in this world, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants you to see. And everything you hear in this world, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants you to hear. Why? Because if you see something, says the Bashamtiv, that is broken, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants you to see it. Do you know why? Because he feels that you have the ability to fix it. And if you hear of something that is broken in this world, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants you to hear about it. Why? So that you can fix it. Now, fixing broken things in this world takes on different forms. Sometimes when you see something that's broken, I actively have the ability to roll up my sleeves and go and fix it. Sometimes, quote unquote, when I see something, I hear something that's broken, all I have the ability to do is to daven. Not, not all, that's significant also. To daven, to think about, to empathize, to, to pick up the phone. There are different ways in which we fix the broken things in life. But the Bashant of HaKadosh is saying, the Mishnah Talmud teaches, Know that everything that occurs to you in this world is from Hashem. And therefore, Ayin Roa, if your eye sees it, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants you to see it. Ozin Shomas, if you hear it, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants you to hear it. Why? Because if you see something broken, do something about it. You hear something broken, do something about it. And says the Vashon, how does the Mishnah end? Do you know what the litmus test or the parameter of a successful life is? Did you fix the broken things you saw? Did you fix the broken things you heard about? Because you see, most people go through life and when they see something broken or they hear something broken, they krechts. You know, krechts. Ay, ay, nebuch, so sad, so sad. They were good krechters. They krechts, right? Or they say, nebuch, 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 nebuch. And then what happens? What happens? 30 seconds later, I'm back to business as usual, right? 30 seconds later, I'm, I'm, I'm back to my life. And meanwhile, says the Mishnah, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. If HaKadosh Baruch allowed you to see something broken, he wants you to do something. Hurt something or something that's broken, he wants you to do something. And do you know what's recorded in the divine ledger? Did you act to try to fix that which was broken? That's what's recorded, not the Averis and the Mitzvahs. But who said, I'm allowing you to hear that which is broken, I'm allowing you to see that which is broken. Are you doing something to try to fix it? Because if you just go through life krechtzing, or you go through life nebuching, or you go through life just, you know, sighing about the terrible broken things that you see, that's a wasted life. But if you see something broken and you try to do something, something, and by the way, sometimes the something is, you know, can I tell you something simple? You're walking down the street and you see, you see that solar ambulance go by, right? So, you know, what's interesting is, what's interesting is, that sometimes it's interesting. What's often the reaction? So I think what often happens is the reaction is either nebach or that it gives a person like, I'm so happy everything is okay with my mishpacha, which is a good thing. But you know, that ambulance, you could have been on any street and that ambulance could have been taken any route. But that ambulance is dafka passing by you at that moment. And maybe what you need to do in that moment is just stop and say a capital of tillum. 
Just take a stop. Cup it off till them. Just stop. Seven seconds it takes to say a capital of Tillim. And if you don't know a capital of Tillim by heart, just utter it to I don't know who's in the back of that ambulance. But I truly hope they have it a for Shalema. I'm davening to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If that ambulance, and again, that's such a simple thing. And I think it happens to many of us like every single day. And we don't really even give thought to it. But if that ambulance is crossing, I'm sorry, this is Baltimore. What is it? It's not ambulance. It's ambulance. Ambulance, right? That's how the Baltimoreans say it, right? So I'm from New York originally. So, okay, we say ambulance. Right? So, again, if it passes right by me, saying, I put that in your way. Maybe, maybe, maybe what that person needs is just one more capital of Tehillim. Maybe what they need is just one more tefillah to tilt the scales in their favor. Just one little thing. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu put that situation right in front of me, not to krechts, not to say nebach, not to say, oh, so happy, it's not my mishpacha, because it is your mishpacha, it's always our mishpacha. But to be able to deliver that one additional tefillah, if you're seeing it, if you're hearing it, do something about it. Because what you do in those moments, when you see the broken things in life, the that's how you're judged after 120. What did you do when you saw the broken things in this world? Did you try to fix them in some way? Or did you just krechts? And there are people who become 120-year krechtsers. We're good at krechtsing, right? And a krechtsing is not a bad thing either. Right? It, it, it's a physical display of empathy. But do something more than sigh. Do something. Sometimes I could roll up my sleeves and actively help and actively fix. Sometimes all I could give you is my neshamas, my tefillah, but I'm going to give you that. But when you see something, when you hear something, you, see, you know, they like to say, hear something. if you see something, say something. If you hear something, if you see something that is broken, do something in this world. Kapitel Dalit, chapter 4 in Sefer Tehillim, is a tehillim that comes as a response because no one did anything, right? Isn't it incredible? At the end of the day, there's a three-year famine because there was a wrong which was perpetrated. There was a wrong which was perpetrated and yet no one stepped up. No one stepped up. Instead, what did people do? This is incredible. And here's what's even more incredible. So no one stepped up in the times of Shaul. No one said, hey, king, you might be the king, but you can't do this. This is wrong. There was no There was no objection. There was no voice of moral clarity. There was no one who said, you cannot do this. This is wrong. And so when you see something broken and no one takes a stand, there is collective responsibility for that. Because the entire reason why HaKadosh Baruch Hu put us in this world. You see, if you think about this, with, with this I'll conclude. If you think about this for just a moment, right? We often, I've spoken about this many times in past Shigurim. Why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu create such a broken world? Because the world is really broken. It, it really is. You know, we like to say, comes to the Toba, everything is for the good and that's all true. But the world is a really broken place. It really is. And yet, the Ribbono Shalom could do anything and everything. So why would the God who could do anything and everything create something which is so broken? And what's the answer? You know, the Ramchal brings this down in Derech Hashem. He says, because the Ribbono Shalom was giving us, is giving us an opportunity 
to partner with him in the creative process. You see, if everything was perfect and everything was great and everything was whole and everything was fixed, then what do you do for 120? You sit back, relax, and enjoy the show, right? You vacation, you work on your tan. Like, what, 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 what? So what, 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 am, what am I doing in the world for 120 if everything is perfect and as it should be? Elamai, what did HaKadosh Baruch Hu do? The Ribbon Shalom said, I did my peace with creation, but I purposely left a number of imperfections. And what do I want you to do with those imperfections? Again, not krechts. What do I want you to do? I want you to see those imperfections. I want you to see those imperfections. And I want you to try to do something to address those imperfections. That's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu creates the wrongs. That's why He creates the imperfections. To give us the opportunity to partner with Him in the creative process. But when I fail to do so, not only am I shirking my personal responsibility, I'm shirking my communal responsibility. And to a certain degree, I'm shirking the entire purpose why I am here. I am here to fix that which is broken. I am here to partner with HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the creative process. I am here to be attentive to what I see, to be attentive to what I hear, and not to krecht, but to do. And when I see something broken or I hear something and I do nothing about it, it's a fundamental shirking of personal responsibility, communal responsibility, and collective responsibility. And that's what David HaMelech highlights in Kapitol Dalid. Kapitol Dalid written, no, not during the flight from Avshalom, like the Radak says, but says, Mom, during the three-year famine, a three-year famine that occurred. Why? Because the community did not rise up to fix something which was broken. Because the community was not the voice of moral clarity in the face of the commission of wrong. Because the community did not go ahead and try to address that which was broken. As a response to this, David HaMalach ultimately pens capital Dalit. And the lesson is so profound for us, because as I mentioned before, at the risk of being repetitive, we see things broken every single day. Every single day. And it's amazing how attuned people are to seeing that which is broken. But yet the Baal Shem HaKadosh tells us, David HaMalach tells us, that if you see that which is broken, that is an invitation. It's an invitation to fix it. It's an invitation to do something. It's an invitation to partner with the Ribbono Shalom in somehow doing our small part to perfect a very broken world. We'll stop over here for today. But in we will continue in Parak Dalid. The rehearsal that I have over nine, actually we're going to save as our intro in Meretz Hashem for next week's shir. And we'll continue in Meretz Hashem with focusing on the Pasuk of Rigzu Va'al Techatou, trying to build, amplify this theme in Kapitol Dalit, as well as in Meretz Hashem branching into others. Yeshikoyach everyone, wishing everyone a wonderful day and a great rest of the week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.